morning. Good morning. I said you would remain standing. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. As we read once again to all of our first-time guests, uh, we're so glad that you're here. To all of our family that comes week in and week out, so grateful that God preserved and has provided us another uh, week of life. It's an honor uh, to be able to stand in front of you and proclaim God's word. Um, we're getting ready to start a series in the Gospel of Matthew. So we'll be in this book for most of the rest of the year. Um, so I want to start and read from Matthew 1 to 17. Let me prepare you. Um, it's a genealogy, so it is going to feel very dry, but there's so much good stuff packed in here. It's important. Let's read. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That's important. We'll get to it. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. This is Salmon. The fish is salmon. Verse 5. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. That's important. We'll get to it. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. That's important. We'll get to it. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. That's very important. We'll get to that. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon, Amon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiad, Abiad fathered Eliakim, El -El Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Achim, Achim fathered El -El Eliud, Eliud fathered Eleazar, El Eleazar fathered Mathen, Mathen fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon. 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, we know that all of your word is your word, and it is useful for teaching, training, instruction, but most of all, your word provides us hope, Lord. On this day, I pray that you would fill our hearts with hope, knowing that you can do the impossible, Father. We ask that that would set deep into our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to take your seats.
Booker T. Washington says this. I have learned that success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life as by the obstacles which he has had to overcome in trying to succeed. What he says is that what's most important about success is not just what somebody has done, but what they've had to overcome to do the thing that they've done. Have you ever seen somebody try to shoot a basketball outside on a windy day? They may try and shoot straight. And even if the ball leaves their hand straight, do you know what the wind's going to do? It's going to blow it off course. Only those that are the most skilled can shoot a shot and have all the elements set to blow it off course but still make that shot time and time again. I bring that up because um, you and I have a lot of things that we want to do in life. You and I have a lot of goals that we're trying to make. You and I have a lot of good that we want to do. Um, and there's a whole lot in our, our life that feels like a windy day that'll blow our good off track, right? Personal sin from us, things that, standards that we have that we don't live up to. And we can feel like that we really want to be faithful, excel, parent well, husband or spouse well, friend well, but then that sin inside of us creeps up and we find ourselves lashing out when we shouldn't. And the goals that we have, it gets blown off course. Scandal can blow our goals off course. Skeletons in our closet that make their way back up at the most inappropriate times. Suffering, self-inflicted wounds that you and I cause knowing that things that we've done in the past have caught up to us and it's nobody else's fault but our own, and those things can take us off course. What perhaps is one of the worst things that take us off course or sidetrack us are things that you and I have no control over, things that affect us before we're even born. And do you know what that is? Family. I was reminded this past week as we were in small group, one thing that we do each week is we start off and we share a testimony about God's faithfulness in the past. And one person started off and said, if you knew the family that I grew up in, you would know that it's a miracle that I'm even here. Family's important. Where you come from can often tell where you'll end up. Remember five or six years ago, uh, the very first time that I met my wife's grandmother, Granny Doe in Wisna, Louisiana. She sees me, and the first question that she asks me is this. She says, John, whose people are you? And what she said is, if I can get a sense of the stock that you came from, then I can know if I, can, if I feel at ease with you being with my grandbaby or if your stock will threaten to blow you and her off course. Our families do tell a whole lot about where we've come from and where we'll end up and what makes things tough. 
is that our family histories are complicated, aren't they? I've got a good friend, Max Stiles, and we've talked about this. And one of the things that he said is, uh, John, what makes my background so tough, especially in the day that we live in and all the stuff that we talk through, is he says, I've got a grandfather who was an abolitionist. And then I've got another grandfather who was a slaveholder. So in the fight for freedom, my family was fighting each other. And then he says, what's worse is I didn't just have faithfulness and failure on on each side of the family. What I had was even my abolitionist grandfather owned a slave. So what he says is I had faith and failure in the same person. So as I look back at my past and the family that I came from and all that, there's so much that's threatening to take me off course. There's so much in my own life and in my background that can blow me off course. Is there any guarantee that my life is going to turn out good? Maybe you're here and because of what went on in your own life, what's going on in your own life, you feel that same concern. Is there any guarantee that all this stuff that's going on in my life is going to work out. Maybe you're here and you're lamenting the family that you grew up in and you feel like there's no way that I can overcome those obstacles. If that's you, the book of Matthew, as it testifies about the work that Jesus Christ has done in the world, is for you. It's not just a book. We call this book the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel literally means this, good news. So what I don't want to do is set as much context for this book as I do just want to set a little bit of context of how you should approach your Bible. You should approach your Bible, listen, more like you would a newspaper than you would a how-to manual. All right, it's going to break down at some points, but hear this. Say you had somebody that found themselves in a nation where there was this big war. And they were scared to go outside because they felt like it was dangerous. or they would get hit by a stray bullet or there was no peace. There's two ways that you could give this person, help to give them the courage that they need to face a broken world. And one thing that you could do is you could come up with a how-to manual. Five steps about walking outside of your house and not being scared. Think good thoughts, right? If you hear a gun go off, dodge, right? Things like that. Or what you could do is find somebody to put an end to that war and put on the front page of a newspaper, the war is over. Now, the war is over doesn't give you a how-to about how it is that you should live. It's, it's good news for people that have been scared that they can get up and walk out. Look, the gospel of Matthew is just that. It's not an ideology. Christianity is not just about a philosophy. It is about an event. Jesus Christ comes into the world, declares that the war is over. And it's this good news that frees you and I up to walk out. They say that a picture paints a thousand words. The gospel of Matthew was about 18,000 words that's going to paint this beautiful picture of Jesus that'll change how you and I interact with him. And it starts, listen, 
This gospel starts with this, a genealogy. Do you know why? Because it wants you to see that the most important part about this news is that it's true. It is an actual event that took place in history. This is not once upon a time in a land far, far away. It starts off with birth records so that you would know that Jesus was an actual person. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Those words, an account of the genealogy of Christ, it literally means this is the genesis of Christ and all that are going to come from him. The same way that the Bible starts off and it gives us a genesis, the beginning of the world for everybody that is tired and frustrated with the world that we live in and is longing for a new beginning. Matthew starts off and says, there's good news. The war's over. Here's a new beginning. And it starts with an event. It's going to show us something about God, something that's helpful for us. And here's what we're going to see here in this text. No amount of sin, scandal, or suffering can sidetrack God's salvation plan. No amount of it. And what you're going to find is that these names aren't just names. They're lives. They tell stories. The same way if you go to a cemetery, it's not just names on the tombstones. People don't come and cry about names. They cry about lives and stories. And so what God's going to do is he's going to walk us down this story. The very first thing that we're going to see is this, stumbling blocks. All right? And I just want you to hear this. Uh, God has never run into a stumbling block. We stumble, but all of those are stepping stones for God. When you're in a race, the most important part about the race is how you start. So people are going to get on these blocks and they're going to plan and rehearse and go over and over and over to make sure that they get a good start. Because if you stumble and fall behind, it's going to mess up the rest of your race. Listen, God did not stumble in the people that he chose. It's not like God chose the wrong people and rebounded after a bad choice. God is going to choose the people that he does for a reason. Look here at verse 2, and it starts off and says this. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. And you read that and say, John, why is that important? Do you know why that's important? Because he starts off with the three fathers of the faith, and these men never should have been either. They never should have been fathers. And they should never have been foundations for any kind of faith. It's miraculous that they were either. And these three men had at least four things in common. One, none of them were the firstborn, which means that they did not have a position of honor in their family. Two, none of them should have been fathers. All of them had marriages where they struggled with infertility. Three, all that they had was a promise from God. Four, all of them struggled with their faith. Every one of them, their performance did not line up with the promise that they had from God. The conclusion, 
all of them made this list. All of them were miracles and testaments to the strength and power and grace of God. Hear this. Them being in here is not meant to tell you anything about them. It's meant to tell you everything about God. And the way that God chooses from the outset, we see that God is always going to choose the underdog, the least likely candidate, for two reasons. To show you and I that his promises are always good, even when our performance is terribly bad. So God's going to choose the way that he does. Not just one time, but three times to show you that he can shoot a shot from half court on a windy day and make it. And he may make the first one. Well, God, you did it with Abraham. That may just be a fluke. So do you know what he's going to do? He's going to do it again with Isaac and say, well, two times you were just lucky. And he says, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do it a third time. And so that every generation knows about the faithfulness of God. And then as they continue to doubt him, do you know what he says? Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my son to be born into this earth through a virgin so that y'all can't say that I just got lucky. God is always going to choose the least likely candidate to show his power and to help you and I see this. Listen, relationship with God is always dependent on faith. It's, it's faith. What you have to wrestle with is, is God really good or not? Is he really powerful or not? And listen, everyone who depends on God, if your relationship is dependent on God, I want you to know this, it will never end in disappointment. Are you disappointed right now? Has God disappointed you? Have you said, John, I heard all of that, but my life has been sidetracked in spite of what God had said. It sure feels like I'm experiencing disappointment. And what I, I never said that you wouldn't experience it. I just said that your story wouldn't end there. If you're still here, your story has not ended. God is still at work. And if you're going to depend on him, it's got to be based on faith. But it's not a blind faith because he's done it time and time again. And these names are here to help you see that. Does that make sense? When it comes to God, you should expect the unexpected. No stumbling block can take God off his plan. But he doesn't just start there. Or he doesn't just stop there. What we see is the, the start of this. It looked like God stumbled. But he's actually setting himself up. So what starts with, it seems like God made the wrong choice with these three guys. Do you know what it moves through? Sin and scandal. Sin and scandal. Uh, a few years ago, there was a show that came out, the biggest show in America at the time. Scandal, right? And uh, part of why it latched on was I felt that um, you didn't have to be famous or powerful to identify with that show because everybody has something or some things, or someone in their past that they wish they could erase. And if they couldn't erase it, then they want to pretty it up and spin what took on in the past so that it wouldn't be a mark on them. 
God does the opposite with the genealogy of Christ. Here's what I mean by that. If you look through the genealogies, right, one thing that you find out, and I'm going to take you all back to health class, um, for a child to be born, it requires both a man and a woman. In the genealogies, we get all the names of men, and you would say, well, why would they just do that? It seems like the women are the ones that are doing the hard work, right, and producing this tree. Well, in this patriarchal society, what took place was that um, there wasn't a respect for women, so they traced the genealogy primarily through the men. So they just didn't talk about women. There's one scholar that said, um, it was so bad that when there were important women in history, uh, they didn't even keep track of their names, so they had to make up names for them. Listen, the Bible, Matthew writing this, he's countercultural in the fact, not just in the fact, fact that he includes women in this story, But notice the particular women that he includes. There's five of them. Do you know what these five women have in common? All of their stories were draped in some type of scandal. Something that may have been believed about them that was false, like Mary. Or something wrong that was done to them. Let me walk you through this. These aren't just names, story. These five women had at least three things in common. One, the first four were all foreigners. They were not Jewish. Ruth was a Moabitess. They were people that were viewed from the Jew standpoint as cursed. And so as Matthew is writing this story about Jesus' family, he's including not just women, but these scandalized women that things were done to them. Tamar, Tamar was a foreign immigrant widow who Judah, the person who received the promise of God and the prophecy that the Savior of the world would come in through him, he didn't fulfill his responsibility to take care of her. So she has to trick him and pose as a prostitute in order to get him to fulfill what it is that he should uh, uh, have done for her to the point where at the end of the day, he says she was more righteous than I was. Rahab, referred to as a prostitute, she likely was also a widow. She was used by men her entire life for their selfish purposes. And God chose to use her for his salvific purposes. What an awesome picture of a redeeming God. Drop down to verse 5. Ruth, another foreigner who was a hardworking immigrant widow, unwanted by the relatives that should have cared for her, and Boaz comes along and redeems the unwanted widow. Down to verse 6. Israel been waiting on a king, and the first thing that Matthew draws our attention to when he talks about King David, 
fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. He's not even going to say her name, Bathsheba, because he wants you and I to know she was stolen. While everybody else failed to do what they should have done to widows, David wanted her so much that he said, I'm going to make her a widow so that I can take her. Rejected by men, but wanted by God. All foreigners, all surrounded in some type of scandal that was done to them. But three, look, God selects them and brings them into the most secure relationship possible. And that's one of his family. God's going to utilize them to bring the Savior of the world, women despised by men, honored by God. And do you know what that's meant to help you and I see? That this sin and scandal that we thought was this kind of black mark on the history of Jesus that would sideline him for doing what God had called him to do, it actually served to prop up God's plan that God had never meant to save just one race of people or one type of person. God has always been a God for the nations, all genres of folks. So even if people were going to try to put God into a box God saying, you're not going to put me into a box because you're not as pure or as right or as holy as you think that you are. Look at this lineage and you'll see the type of people that I'm trying to save. Christianity has always been ahead of the curve when it comes to things that our world values. So before the globalization that comes with the internet or, or things like that, what you have is Christianity is this first and true global religion. And here's what I mean by global. Not just that one or two folks in, or, or there's a small group of folks all over the world that are Christians, but it's this. I went to Israel about three years ago, and what floored me the most was not the sites and all that stuff, right? Google, you, you, you can plug in and see all of those. What floored me the most was that as we sat at the tomb, seeing all the different types of people that walked by, singing the same praises to God. The tunes were the same. The languages were different. And what you saw was old, young, Chinese, Brazilian, white, black, rich, poor, just this 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 amalgamation of folks that helped you see that God is not the God of just one type of genre. He's, he's a global God. And I just sat back and thought, if there really was a God that made all types of people and he wanted all types of people to know that he didn't have a favorite type of person, he would create something like this that speaks to the deep universals of everybody's heart. What picture comes to mind when you think of the word Christian? What nationality comes to mind? If any particular one comes to mind, I think that you've missed what the Bible's been trying to get at. If you're here as a Christian, or if you're here and you're not a Christian, and when you think of the word Christian, you can't think of that label on somebody that looks like you, I think that you've missed what the Bible's trying to get at. 
If you think of Christian and you think of somebody that you despise or frustrated that has done something wrong to you and you could never see them fit in the box, then I think that you've missed out on what God's trying to do. He left this path messy so that you and I would see that Jesus came for all types of people. So that you and I would see that no sin nor scandal can sidetrack God's saving purposes. What have you done to make you feel like Christian could never be applied to you? I want you to know that there's nothing. There's nothing. Awful things were done, but what I love about this is this story is still going. No amount of sin, no amount of scandal, and look, no amount of Suffering. Look at verse 11 and 12. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. When the Bible brings up this term exile, what took place was that because Israel failed to live up to God's standards and failed to repent. When they did, God says, you've earned this. I'm going to send you into exile. Seventy years that they had to feel this self-inflicted wounds for the things that they did wrong. And what I love about this story is that those 70 years, right, that's, that's a lifespan. That's somebody that grows up, lives, and dies exiled from their home. It's captured in 13 words. What that helps us see is suffering, however burdensome it may feel, in light of what Christ has done, it's brief. We'll look back on it and we'll see that it's brief, but more than that, what we see is a God who even though people earn themselves in exile, doesn't leave them there. Listen, you may not have known what, or you may not have actually been exiled from your homeland, but I guarantee that you know what it feels like. Do you know that feeling you get when you go to a funeral and you say, this isn't right. Like, I know death is a part of life, but this just feels wrong. You know that feeling you get when you experience a breakup where you just say, God made us for friendship and community, and we have this conflict that we just can't get past, and there's something that feels wrong. You know that feeling that you have around the holidays when you want to go home and be with your family, but there's something that's torn your family in two, and you just feel like, I know this happens to a bunch of people, but there's something that just doesn't feel right. That's something inside of you that's testifying to the fact that you were never made to experience death, enduring conflict, anger, resentment. You weren't made for for that. That feeling that you get when you go through the week and you find out that at Kroger, 
people were arguing in the produce section. And somebody pulls out a gun in the store and shoots somebody else. And you say, it's not just that there's something off with the world. It's that something is really broken. You know what the Bible calls that? Sin. Sin is not just rules that we break. Sin is a relationship with God that should have been based on faith. And we break the relationship because we don't like the way that he does things or the way that he tells us that we should live. And in a lack of faith, we sin against God. And as a result of that, sin, things that just seem small, anger, bitterness, resentment, can snowball into lives being taken, into the world that we have right now. What's the answer for that? What is the answer for all of us who in some way, shape, or form feel like we're in exile from what's right, but we just can't get back there? Because even if we were to try to change our lives right now and to do everything right, we find ourselves in a world where everybody isn't like that. So even if we do all things right, it doesn't mean that all things that are right will be done to us. Even if we do our best to try to make sure that we do all that we can to make sure that we don't contribute to this world of violence, we know that we walk out of our houses and it feels like the war isn't over. Do you know what we do? Do you know what you need? You don't fundamentally need instructions, you need good news. And here is the good news that you need. This family tree that we see here, it comes to an end in Jesus, right? It it stops there. And we could look and say, well, John, ah, this kind of feels like I stumbled into a family reunion, and there are shirts here, but I, I don't have a shirt. People are hopeful, and they're full of joy, and I don't have that same hope. Here's the good news, that your journey towards hope, your journey ends where Christ's life begins. And here's what I mean by this, right? Jesus is the end of this family tree, not end in the fact that it's finished, but end in fulfillment, right? So it's like, you know, you put a cake in the oven and the time for baking comes to an end and the cake is done. This is what this is explaining. Here's what I mean by that. Um, the genealogy starts, stops here. You look through and it says this guy fathered, this guy fathered, this guy fathered, this guy fathered, 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 fathered. Um, and then it gets to Jesus. And do you know what we find? Jesus is a guy who people were waiting for to end this war. But his life comes to a tragic end. Jesus doesn't marry anybody. 
which means Jesus doesn't father anybody in the true sense of this word. Do you know what they would do in genealogies where they're trying to trace this tree out and somebody comes to the end of their life and they die like that? They say, obviously, we, we don't go through that branch. Let's try to trace the promises of God through another branch. So people looked at the life of Jesus, and here's why Easter is so important. You remember the stories here in this list? All of them were rejected by men, but chosen by God. Jesus was the one set down, chosen by God to fix the mess of this world that we're in. And he was rejected by men. Jesus had no sin like we did that would sidetrack God's plan. But Jesus felt the weight that came from sin. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for all of our sins, all the things that we've done that we wish we could erase but couldn't. They were all placed on Jesus. Suffering. The suffering that we should have faced are self-inflicted wounds were canceled out, not because they were erased, but they were displaced off of us onto Jesus. And Jesus, who lived this sinless life, experienced this tragic end. Oh, it seemed like it was a tragic end because the resurrection changes everything. It redeems the tragic end of Christ's life and turns it into this illustrious beginning. Fleming Rutledge puts it like this. Listen. If Jesus Christ never rose from the dead, you never would have heard of him. There were tens of thousands of people that were crucified at the hands of the Romans in that time span. Name me one. And if by chance you get one, name me two (laughs) or three. Do you know why you don't hear of them? Because crucifixion is the most shameful way to die. That if somebody that was a part of your family was crucified, you know what you do? You take that eraser and you erase them off of the family tree. Because your genealogy was like a resume. And you know when you go in to get that job, you do not talk about that job that you were fired from. There's just a gap of employment for six years. That's what they would do with genealogies. Listen, but, but, but God leaves it all here. And not only that, but we see Jesus. We see Christians not only mentioning it underneath their breath, but boasting in the fact that their king was crucified and killed. 
which would be shameful and a stumbling block and would be the wind that throws God's basketball off course if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. But because he rose from the dead, far from it being this dead branch that's thrown off the tree, it's actually the seed that plants this new beginning, this brand new tree. Here's why that's important. If you think that I'm making too much of this, look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. We're going to do a little math, so keep this in your back pocket. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. What's the significance of those 14. Well, because it's not three sets of 14. It's actually six sets of seven. In the Bible, when God starts and creates the world, God does it in seven days. Throughout the rest of the Bible, uh, literary devices, when that number is used, it's meant to show completion. So Jesus comes on the scene and Matthew's saying, look, It's not just that this guy was born at the end of six sets of seven, but when his life starts, it's actually the beginning of the seventh set of seven. So what he's saying is, no, no, listen, God's work is really complete in Christ. Jesus is coming to start a whole new type of family. And listen, look back at verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, look, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Everywhere else in the Bible where it mentions the genealogy of somebody, do you know what it it starts with their name? And then it describes not their ancestors, but their descendants. Because this person isn't meant to give significance to their ancestors because they're dead and gone. The only people that they can give status to are the people that come after them. Here's what's unique with Jesus being God and born in the flesh. His ancestry tells us something about him that ours does not. You did not pick the people you were birthed from. It was like the lottery. There's some of us that feel like we struck gold and some of us that feel like we got the short end of the stick. Jesus is the only person to ever live that when he came to the earth, picked, handpicked everybody that would be on the list of his ancestors. So that you and I can see he didn't just stumble out of the gate and recover. Abraham was the father of faith, but his performance was messed up. Jesus comes as the perfecter of it. David was supposed to be the king that people's hope rested on to bring them into this future, but David's performance was terrible. He he got somebody else's wife. Jesus is going to come and to be the king that stays faithful and true to his bride, the church, us. The Israelites came back from exile, but even though they were together, they weren't together. Jesus comes in and creates this church where there is real and true unity. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of, of all of that hope. His goal is to show that he wants to produce a church or a family full of kings that do deplorable acts. Prostitutes that prove that they live righteously. Men and women and poor and old and young and educated and not those who can read and those who can't. And his church is supposed to be a reflection of that. That's the good news. The good news about Easter is that this God that we hope would break in and save the world is the God of the entire world. Easter is not just for Christians or those that grew up in church to get back. Easter is for everybody. The biggest and most important truth in the universe is not just about how you should live, what you should do, how you should conduct your marriage. How do you respond to the news of Jesus? That he came to save a broken world. That he came to reveal fully what God is like. The only appropriate response is faith. Depending on him completely for your sense of worth, your identity, who you are, and why it's important. If you can't relate that to your status in Christ, then you're building your identity on something that will blow away. We were studying this this past week, and Keith said, um, Jesus' muddy pedigree is meant to show you and I that God came to save messy people. Did you come in here today low? Did you come in here today focusing on your past and how much of a mess you've made of things or how much of a mess other people have made of things? That may have been the case, but the good news is that shouldn't be where your focus is. Your focus should be on a God who came and has a plan for salvation that no sin, no scandal, no suffering can sidetrack. That's the love of God made available to you in Christ. What's stopping you from putting your trust in him? No amount of your sin, no amount of scandal, no amount of suffering is big enough to stop that train from moving forward. So don't let it. Let's stare at Jesus. Look at this good news. 
remind other people that are feeling low, not just about what they should do, but what news they should believe. And see how God changes things. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the goodness that is found in Jesus. Lord, we are thankful that your promises stand even when uh, we constantly fail and fall. Lord, I pray far from that being an excuse for us to, to live as we think that we should or to live however we want to that that good news about being reconciled and brought into your family would be a thing that fills us with a sense of worth and confidence and boldness, so much so that we wouldn't look at anybody and diagnose their biggest problem as anything other than that, Father. I pray that we would live lives we would use our resources, our time, and our money to exemplify that, that we wouldn't be just those that love in thought and word, but indeed, Father. We're grateful that your son rose from the dead and that we heard about him. Give us faith to believe this news. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.